Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. A thousand years before the birth of Greek philosophy, the forebears of the biblical authors inhabited a world in which the families of the earth coexisted in the land with different languages and cultures. In the story of Luke, as with the rest of the Bible, the author's focus is not on identity, but locality the place where you are found. Using the lens of language, food, skin color, beliefs, music, and other passing characteristics, community builders apply identity as a powerful tool for social organization. From the conquering Greeks of history to Caesar Augustus and Luke to the social engineers of our age, community builders depend on philosophical identity because the nature of their anti-Eucharistic project is to overrun and control locality. Thanks be to God who sent his son to show us the way back to neighborly fellowship with all creatures that live and dwell in our locality under the heavens in the watchful care of the biblical shepherds of Israel. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 459 of the Bible as Literature podcast. If we were selling a brochure about a tour of the Holy Land, we would be so excited about Luke chapter 2, verse 4, because it would be an opportunity to promote a trip from Galilee to Judea. And we'd call our friend in Nazareth and ask him to give you a little side trip to some of the nice restaurants and interesting places in Palestine to go visit. But that's not what we're going to do, because we don't sell tours in the Holy Land on this podcast. In fact, if we're going to talk about the Holy Land on this podcast, we are talking about the reality inside the scroll, the reality posited by the story contained or that comes out of the scroll of God's instruction. And I say the story that comes out of the instruction because the instruction is the story and the story is an instruction. And I know we can't use the word is in Hebrew, but since we're speaking in English, we have no choice. Deal with it, you'll be fine. Because we're not going to Judea on a pilgrimage. It is not a tour of the Holy Land. We are going to Judea because of the anti-history constructed by Luke's character 
Remember, he is a literary construction. We're not talking about Roman history. We're talking about the Lucan anti-history. We are going to Judea because Luke's rendering of Caesar Augustus has given a command in opposition to the will of God to divide God's polity into different cities according to their tribe or their ethnicity. And as such, these poor people are being sent back to their region, Judea, even though they're not from that region, which fits the paradigm that Father Paul was talking about in the rise of Scripture of Herod's marketing plan to brand everyone with circumcision, even if they're not from Judea, so that he could levy a tax to build his religious construction project. So that's what's happening here. And what was the result? People selling brochures and tours to the Holy Land, which we're still fighting over endlessly. This almost seems like a anti-jubilee, where Caesar told everyone to go back to their city so that he could tax them. The jubilee said that everyone had to go back to their patrimony, and all the land had to go back to the original inheritors of the land whom the Lord of the land, that is God, distributed. Here, though, everyone has to go back to their land. And Father, what you said, I think is really significant, that everyone had to go back to their land of their tribe, of their ethnicity. You know, in Galilee, we had a mixture of ethnicities and mixtures of people. We had Jews, we had Gentiles, we had all different sorts of peoples who lived there. And Caesar says, okay, everyone, back to your towns. So a bunch of people came to Galilee who had moved away from Galilee, and all those people from Galilee had to move back to their cities. I don't know how long they had to stay where they were so they could be counted, but I'm assuming it was as long as Caesar decided it should happen. So we have this anti-pilgrimage or maybe even a pilgrimage, but for the sake of Caesar, not for God. This was not a way for God's will to be returned to the land, like the Jubilee, where everyone got the lot that they had inherited that God had offered to them. But here it's the land that they, quote, belong to, unquote, according to Caesar. And so there's very much this ethnic aspect to it. And with Joseph— it has to do with his line to David. And this is a significant contrast from Matthew, where we see that Joseph has this line back to David because of simply a genealogy that's read out, whereas here the genealogy is not read out. It simply says that he is a child of the house of David, and so therefore he goes back to this city along with all the other children of David, we're going to have to assume. And so everyone is going back to this one city. So it's a way of saying the same thing that Matthew did, but in a very, very different way. And that goes back to your point as well, Father, about how the story is the teaching and the teaching is the story. We have this same point, but it's presented in very different ways, not because of a contradiction, but because of a way that it's laid out. Here, it's a geographical recognition as opposed to a genealogical recognition that he belongs to this land because of his patrimony, which was handed to him by the one who owns the land, which is God. And that 
is going to be, like you said, Father, in contradiction to Caesar's will. So again, we have Caesar's will versus God's will right here in the beginning of Luke. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. The reality is that you are wherever you find yourself, wherever you are found. This whole notion of identity is a fallacy. And that, I'm afraid, is practically impossible for those listening to this podcast to accept, digest, and grasp because we are completely formed in the womb of Hellenism beyond hope, beyond repair in the modern West. We begin our conversation, drive our conversation, and refer back to, at every point in the conversation, our identity. And we fail to recognize that identity is a construct. It's made up. It's not real. It's something we imagine and design and create. But in Scripture, there is only one creator. Bereshit bara Elohim. There is only one who creates. There is only one who architects. That's why Jesus is a carpenter because he reports to the only architect. Just look at the Greek in the New Testament. So this business of identity based on what you imagine you are, which is a form of the verb to be, is in contradiction to scriptural locality, where you are found. So if you are found in Nazareth in Galilee, in a mixed bag with people of different colors who speak different languages and eat different foods and worship different statues and read different books and have different customs, it doesn't matter what their lineage is. You are all found in the same place, living in the same earth not earth as in the planet, but the land in which you are found. And that place is your mother. You are so-and-so from that place. That is your locality. Those are your neighbors. And in true Hellenistic Alexandrian fashion, Caesar Augustus is wiping out that God given locality, which is a different type of identity. I don't even want to use the word identity because you will immediately go to your philosophical identity. Caesar Augustus is wiping out that locality to create his little community. Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter 2 is a community builder. He should run for office in the United States. People would love it. He's a social engineer. He is destroying what God created. He is destroying God's neighborhood. 
God's community, God's locality, which is beautiful with all the colors in the rainbow, in order to do whatever he wants to do in Judea and all the other cities he's trying to register. He is dividing, in very literal terms, he is dividing the body politic of Jesus Christ. He is dividing the body of Christ. It is anti-Eucharistic what is happening in verse 4, Richard, and I guarantee you everybody reads it in the opposite direction because in our heart of hearts, we all view the Eucharist in backwards terms. This whole social engineering project that Caesar is undertaking of having everyone go back to their city so he can count them, it's peculiar to me. Because what's the mechanism he's using for counting them? Why do they have to go back to their cities if he's going to count them? Can't you count them where they already are? I don't understand Like why you have to put them in a particular place to count them. What is it that Caesar needs them to go back to, supposedly back to, the place of their origin? And how far back do you go, right? I mean, it goes back to a particular point in time, but I mean— David's great-great-grandparents were not born in Bethlehem. So how far back do you go? It's a social engineering program. Caesar wants everyone to go back to their place, and for whatever reason, the place where Joseph goes back is to the city of David. It's to his house. It's to the house that is recognized. We have the children of Israel. They're also children of Isaac, but we're only talking about the children of Israel. In Bethlehem go the children of David not the children of Jesse, but the children of David. So we have this royal line all located in one place. Was this recognized by Caesar? Is that why? We don't know. We don't know. We know that this establishes Jesus's foster father, Joseph, as of the royal house, and Jesus is part of his house, and so he has this identity as a child of David. But just like you said, Father, the whole point of the Gospels is to reappropriate or even crush these different human identities that we come up with, and so this is going to turn it upside down. This is not a story of the house of Caesar versus the house of David. If you're reading this for the first time, you might think that, because we have all the remaining people of the house of David in one place at one time. Are they going to come together to fight against Caesar? Are they going to come together as a single ethnicity, a single people, in order to fight against Caesar? Or are they put all in this place in order to show how Caesar has subjugated this house and how this house belongs to him as the Caesar of all the houses, the father of fathers and the king of kings, right? David's just a king. Caesar's the king of kings. And this is how it's going to work. So we have this tension between them. Now, it's also significant that Mary is his espoused who is already pregnant. This does not have a story of Joseph having a crisis like we have in Matthew, where he says, what am I supposed to do about this? And trying to put her away and all that. We don't have that in Luke, by the way. Joseph does not seem to be bothered by the fact that Mary is pregnant. And, you know, <laughs> we had a big, long explanation of what, how this all happened. And it was Gabriel who was in charge and everything the way that it happened. It wasn't just, oh, by the way, this is going to happen. We have a whole story here. And Joseph does not seem to have this problem. But Mary doesn't have to go back to the house of her family. She's going with the family of her, not husband, but her fiance, 
interestingly. And so this is what makes Jesus part of the line of David. So we do have him in the line of David, but we already know that he is given by the word from Gabriel, and through the Holy Spirit we have this pregnancy. We have Mary going into the city as well, and we're thinking from the very beginning that this is going to be the story of another child of David. But we're going to find out through the book of Luke, just like we saw in Matthew, like we saw in Mark, this this is nothing like David, as we conceive of David from First and Second Samuel, but a different kind of king who remained a shepherd, who remained obedient to the will of the Father, who does not fall in the trap of David, who wanted to have a census of all his people. This Jesus is okay being the only one to follow the will of his Father. Hearing Luke... With fresh ears, after doing an in-depth study of the rise of Scripture, just makes it so difficult not to constantly roll my eyes at Josephus and all of the history writing that was done in late antiquity, the historicizing that was done, and the way in which people tried to take these texts and syncretize them with Hellenistic history writing. It's a disaster. Because once you put all of that aside, and then you think about what you're saying about David, the house of David, Richard, in the context of Scripture, and then you think about Yahweh, the cultic deity, and then Yahweh in the context of Scripture— what you realize is that you're dealing with a kind of local, cultic, tribal David that needs to be universalized and reformatted to pertain to the scriptural God and his scriptural intention in the same way that Yahweh had to be universalized to pertain to Elohim, Yahweh your Elohim. In the same way all of the other gods were overwritten, David has to be overwritten. That's why you have two functional Davids. But right now, David, in verse 4, is under the boot, as you said, of Caesar Augustus. We're dealing with a real difficult problem here. This is ridiculous. Who says Judea? Who says David? Who says register? Caesar Augustus says, well, who is Caesar Augustus? And who cares what Caesar Augustus says? I mean, everybody does. Not the addressee of Scripture. If he is, you know, Theophilus, the lover of God. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, and of course the manger is a trough that animals eat out of, And the inn is a stop along the way when it's an interruption in your travels. It's a place where people eat. It's a place where people lodge. So you have this tension. You have a place where human beings 
sit at table and eat, a place of lodging potentially constructed by the hand of man, and then you have this trough that animals eat out of. The place where human beings enter into to eat and to sleep and to lodge rejected Jesus in the city of David, in the land of Judea. And he was instead lodging in this receptacle that's used to hold the food for all of the land animals to eat out of. It reminds me a little bit of Genesis. Normally when people preach about this because they're anthropocentric, meaning they view being among the animals as a criticism, as somehow demeaning, they speak about this in terms of the putting down of Jesus somehow. But if you hear it against the backdrop of Genesis, this is the restoration of Ben-Adam's, although he's not named Ben-Adam here in Luke. This is, however, the restoration of the son of Adam's proper place in God's creation of the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 through 4. Because we are just one of the other animals. We're just one of the many land animals created min adama, as we've heard over and over again, Richard, on this program and in Father Paul's books. So it's a very interesting verse. Yeah, and there's a few things that come to mind as well. I mean, you know, the fact that they were here housed among the animals, that there was no room for them in the inn, makes me think, how big is this house of David? How big has it grown that all the people who used to live in Bethlehem now had to leave to go to their cities, I'm assuming, freed up some space, but not enough space for all the further children of David to come and stay in the city. So there was that little room and that big of a house of David. But the other part is that the lack of hospitality, what it makes me think of in Genesis for me is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they did not show hospitality to guests. How is it that these people didn't have a place for them to stay? And I mean, a pregnant woman didn't have a place to stay. You know, in every Christmas pageant, Mary's just this humble, quiet, young woman who's pregnant and that sort of thing. But I mean, for heaven's sake, when I lived in Kiev, if you didn't give your bus seat to a pregnant woman, the old ladies would all shout at you. So are you telling me that there are young men staying in rooms in the inn while there's a pregnant woman sleeping on hay with animals? This is crazy that you would show this kind of hospitality. This doesn't necessarily contradict the point that you made, Father, that it's good for the children of Adam to be among the other creatures, the other creations of God. That's not necessarily a problem. But from a human perspective, not to show hospitality to children of David, including the pregnant fiancé of one of the children of David, is quite a slight. So what is wrong with these people in Bethlehem? that they don't know how to perform hospitality. And this is not hospitality. I'm not talking about Minnesota brunch. That's not what I'm talking about when it comes to hospitality. In this place, hospitality really means everything. I mean, your family's honor can rise and fall based on your family's hospitality. So a slight in this area is really an insult against the city of David. And if it's a 
slight against the city of David, it's a slight against the family and the lineage of David, the whole house of David is suspect if they don't know how to show hospitality. So I really want to emphasize this point. This is a huge fail on behalf of the Bethlehem Chamber of Commerce, that they couldn't manage to find a place in some hotel or somebody's house or somebody's next to somebody in their bed somewhere, but could only find a place next to a horse. That's suspect. So I want to bring out this point of hospitality because, like I said, it doesn't necessarily contradict what God would want, but it definitely contradicts what is decent for a human being to do. Rich, it fits the point precisely. I don't think there's any tension between the two observations. They actually work together, and let me explain how. You have the human beings living in Bethlehem rejecting the commandment to show hospitality. And you gave the example of Sodom and Gomorrah, also from Genesis. Then you have Jesus being laid in a feeding trough. And in verse 7, it doesn't actually mention animals, and we'll deal with verse 8 next week. But I want to point out that in verse 8, it talks about the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks. That is where the reference of animals comes in in Luke, and we'll deal with that, as I said, next week. But the key here is you have two opposing hospitalities. You have the dismal hospitality of the human table in the inn, and you have the hospitality of the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks. The feeding trough is associated with shepherdism and the flocks. That's why you have in the classic manger scene that still appears on people's mantles in less than 47% of the country. <laughs> you still have from my mother's homeland, you know, the olive wood statuettes of sheep crowded around a feeding trough with Jesus lying in it. There it is. The sheep and the shepherds had no trouble welcoming Jesus into their fold. But the human beings had no room for him at their table. That is the difference between the hospitality of Caesar Augustus and the hospitality of the biblical shepherds. So I think your point, Richard, is right on the money and fits exactly with the observation about living among the animals in Genesis. I think it is the point. So I'm very grateful for the example that you brought forward. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.